This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Hi, this is Mark Elliott Stein from World Beyond War, speaking to you from Brooklyn, New York. I'm really excited about today's podcast. We're going to do something we've never done before. We've gathered here five young activists, emerging activists, who are calling into our podcast from five continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, North America, and South America. I'm excited that today's technology allows us to have a gathering like this. Even more than the locations of our guests today, I'm also excited that these five guests are significantly up-and-coming voices in the urgent movements that we all care about. Movements to end war all over the world, which is the purpose of World Beyond War, the grassroots global organization behind this podcast, and movements to deal with climate change, to address massive problems of inequality, oppression, social injustice, and so much more. I'm first going to introduce the person who made today's podcast possible, Phil Gittens, World Beyond War's education director, who is speaking to us today from England. Phil. Can you tell us the story of how you met the five amazing people we're about to talk to today, and also about the previous conversation you had with these five people, which can be found on World Beyond War's YouTube channel, and which we're building on today? Yes, thank you, Mark, and th thank you so much to you, Mark, for putting this wonderful um, podcast together, and thank you so much to the young people for, for, for joining us. And in a sense, we need to really start with saying thank you to the young people, because in many ways, this, this podcast came about thank you to the work that the young people are doing, and also to the young people for reaching out. So... In, rather than speaking about each of the five young people, so we know that, that some are um, alumni of World Beyond War, we also know that some also are, um, and each young person can speak for themselves later if they want to, uh, some young people on the podcast are also part of the Rotary family. And um, thank you so much uh, to, the, to, well, let's say Liber and both Alejandra for inviting me to speak at certain rotary events and then after that we've had follow-up conversations with regards to how we can be in discussions together. Um, Malena um, was put in contact um, with me through World Beyond War and also a partner organization in the UK who said she would be a great speaker and um, Christine um, we've been in contact for some time now, a real powerhouse in terms of youth, peace and security, doing some great work um, uh, across across Africa. So there's, and Sayaku is, is the one who is the World Beyond War um, uh, alumni. So they, it, it came about really, it's kind of a beautiful thing that's kind of happened, bringing these you know young people together from all different points. So I think another part of connected part to that is why, why you know, young people and why why war abolition work with young people? Well, when we look at young people, we now have more young people on the planet than ever before. The uh, age generation 15 to 24 is the largest and fastest growing demographic on the planet. So engaging young people in peace and security war abolition work is not just a question of equity or democracy, it's a question of pragmatics. You know, it's a pragmatic imperative. If we're not including these young people, 
positively in war abolition work, then we obviously can't fulfill our overall mission of ending the war system and building a just sustainable peace. So that is part of the idea. And then as those that might know, and you might want to check it out, the young people did a wonderful uh, video as part of the Geneva Peace Week that we completed recently called um, Pathways to Preventing War and uh, and um, Promoting Peace, a conversation with young people on five continents. After that, I can tell you that so many people have expressed interest and, and really love the work that the young people did, So, um, including Mark. So uh, we just thought, okay, let's think of some other things that we can really uh, provide a platform for these young people to kind of voice all the wonderful work that they're doing. So, so that's part of the um, the idea, I think, behind this podcast and other activities that we've got up and coming. Thank you, Phil. We are going to be dealing with some really serious and heavy issues today. I really want to know from each of you what made you become an activist. What caused you to make the decisions and the choices that you've made that led you to being here today. And I want to go one by one and just ask each of you a few questions. Many of our backgrounds are so different from each other that I really want to fully hear from each of you. I'm going to start with Alejandra Rodriguez, who is calling in from Colombia. I want to ask you, Alejandra, how have you or your family or your friends been personally affected by war or racism or violence or oppressive governments? Is there a legacy of war where you live? Well, hello to everyone. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to meet all of you again. Um, I think that personally, unfortunately, I have not experienced the horrors of war um, directly. However, day by day, I live with the stories too difficult to be told. Um, I have, for example, many friends who have been displaced from their lands by the war. Um, who have had to migrate to the cities and so on. So, for example, in fact, one of my best friends is threatened because the family has a supermarket business in a very conflictive city called um, Tumaco in the south of Colombia. And her family cannot live, cannot have political participation or anything else because of, of this threat. So this story seems closer than one might think. Um, I, I'm even from an area where in this pandemic, um, it, it have be, been killed many people. Um, they killed, for example, eight young people in a village just for being together and have like a party. And everybody knows that they were illegal groups that many times are allied with the government. In my case, um, the two ways that I have experienced um, like this kind of um violence um have been because i am a student of a public university so since we organize ourselves as students to go out and protest to question what the government itself does and um, the repression that one feels for expressing one's opinion for denouncing is very complicated um for example when we go out to protest um there are always police or special armed forces. And it is now that the fights between citizens and police is because of the same police that begin to want to dilute the protest marches, even if they are like pacific ones. And on the other hand, being a young peace builder is not easy 
fortunately, I have the support of an international organization and I can talk about peace perfectly without feeling um, threatened. But if this were not the case, it would be terrible. They will tell me that I am part of the guerrillas or many other things. So, yes, in, in response to the other question, that if there is a legacy of violence, of course there is. Um, the peace process here in Colombia um, has made us see new realities, but 50 years of violence cannot be taken away from one day to the next. Um, what I always say is that violence here is cultural. It doesn't hurt us that someone is killed, that the peasants are displaced, that there is not, um, for example, freedom of the press, but we are interested in novels of drug dealers or songs that incite violence and other things. And it's really sad to say that many children dream of being drug dealers here in Colombia. I mean, how that is possible. So yeah, that is what I, I have experienced about in my in my country. Thank you, Alejandra. I want to follow up on some of that. When you say um, 50 years of violence cannot be erased, I want to follow up with some questions, but I'd like to go around and ask everybody to kind of give an introductory answer first, and then let's drill deeper. So I would like to ask Liba Khan, who is calling in from India, the same question. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me here. So your question was like, uh, did me or my family ever face racism or some violence? So to be honest, the thing many people don't know about India is in India there exists a huge religion biasness, or I could say minority suppressed by majority. Me personally, like my father faced one incident of racism. It was a lockdown time and COVID-19 just started to spread rapidly in India. And my father just went to buy vegetables from market. And like coincidentally, one shop was open. And he just asked the vegetable vendor, like, do you have some potatoes and red chilies? I want some vegetables. So the vegetable vendor in return asked him, first, tell me what is your religion? He was confused and gave a weird look because it was kind of something different. He would never expect a vegetable vendor to ask him. But then he said, I am a Muslim. And in reply, the vegetable vendor said that we don't sell vegetables to the people who belong to the religion, who, who belong to the Muslim community. So that was quite shocking that being in India, like I have personally seen it, seen it majority people just rules over minority people and like to be honest minority the people who are in minority cannot speak up freely neither they can move out freely and even if they do they will be like uh, you know in large amount they will be suppressed or they will be discouraged by other people because it's like 80 percent of the majorities of hindus hindu community and the rest accounts of muslims and you know the other religions so that's the case with India. And yeah, we have faced it and we just cannot speak freely in India about any of the political topic because if we say we feel we have a fear in our heart that, uh, you know, people might object on us. So yeah, that's the case in India. 
Malena Villanov, you're calling in from England. I would like to ask you the same question as well. Do you see a legacy of war that has influenced you in terms of your development as an activist? And what is the legacy of war, violence, racism, et cetera, in, in your environment? For sure. Well, thanks, first of all, um, Mark and Phil, for having us back. I think all of us were really excited to have um, the space to be together again and to talk the way that like so candidly, like we did last time. Um, and as we were kind of discussing earlier, I'm quite the globetrotter, trotter, trotter, I'm not sure. But regardless, um, I think many aspects of like my personal life have been affected by war, especially a legacy of war. Um, my mother's from the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Eastern region, um, where currently things are still very, very unstable. And this instability is a result of years of neglect and of like, if anything, like procrastination on making actual peace efforts um, that could, you know, work and, and um, you know, remain in place for and, and actually have like a, a, an impact um, on the populations. Um, to this day, you know, sexual assault and sexual violence is still used as a way to perpetuate war and as a way to disrupt populations and their growth as communities um in in this part of the country which by the way is where we get all of our minerals for our phones and our technological devices like we owe a lot to eastern congo um and obviously i feel very emotionally about it and i feel like we've as an international community we've let that part of the world down um i've got my family that's still there um you know, it's, it's not, it's definitely not easy. And I think when it comes to my job, so I um, set up an organization here in Manchester called Demilitarized Education with a friend of mine. And essentially we're a community um, for modern day peacemakers. And our current aim is to get universities to commit to, you know, global peace by divesting from the arms trade and by ending any and all relationships that they have with that industry. Um, Specifically because when I think of like, you know, the, the kind of supply chain aspect of that industry and what happens is that usually the end result could be in literally like my mom's village and where she grew up and where some of my family still is. Um, so it's it's definitely, you know, the legacy of, of not only colonialism that took place in Congo, um, which which was frankly, I mean, no form of colonialism was soft. Right. But that was definitely one that was atrocious um and lasted a long time and yeah it was very disruptive um and you know with the, the if you mix the legacy of of the colonialism and then the legacy of the wars that happened um in the 90s and early 2000s and then now with the fact that like there's still rebel groups in the east and that the area is still very unstable i mean it it makes up my entire um reason for doing what i do today you know i i wouldn't I wouldn't feel so strongly about our activities and our efforts here in the West, you know, capital W West. Um, if I, if I didn't think back to, to my family, um, um, back home, which I've never even been, I went to Congo the first time when I was 19. Um, I'm nearly 25 now and I've only ever been to the capital, which is in the West. And like that part is fairly secure. Now I, I have yet to go and actually see like my, my roots. 
Well, thank you again. You know, I so much I want to dig into. We're going to keep going, but I hope we can loop back to this. And I also hope, Phil, that you can get a chance to ask questions as we go and that you can ask of each other as well. I'm now going to turn to Christine Odera, who's calling in from Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya, I think if that's right. I'd like to ask you, Christine, can you tell us what led you to personally become involved in the peace movement? Um, thank you so much, Mark. I'm presently in Kisumu, but yeah, I'm mostly in Nairobi. Um, thank you so much for having me here. And it's so nice to also join my other brilliant peacekeepers from around the world and to also have the amazing feel with us. Um, one of the reasons why I joined uh, Peace Building was because I was just tired of waiting for someone to come and do something. And I think for me, it was the self-actualization of knowing that I am the someone I have been waiting to come and do something. And so I was like, I'm just going to take on the challenge and, and start doing something because I was just tired of seeing all the social exclusion that we, we, we continue to experience. Um, what you realize in Africa is we have a lot of civil wars and some of these date back to, I mean, colonial era, um, eras. And so it's, it has been a sort of transgenerational conflict that is affecting us mostly. So you look at us at a, as a developing world and we're still going through some issues that honestly in the 20th, in the 21st century, we shouldn't be going through. But that just tells you how the legacy of wars just transcends into generations. And, and so I am just here to challenge myself and to say, could I be the person to join with others to change all this that is happening and to speak up for the issues, whether it's democratic, whether it's just social cohesion, whether it's just talking against ethnic uh, neg negative ethnicity, and just wanting to live together as 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 humans, as people, and the 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 fact that I want to live in peace, I want to see other people get clean water, I want to see other people just enjoy their foods and don't and, and not live in fear is among the things that really, you know, led me to do this. Wonderful. Again, looking forward to asking you some more questions. And now, since we're just going around our sort of introductory phase, I'd like to ask Sayako Izeki Nevins, who is calling in from the United States, the same question. Tell us, Sayako, how is it that you became an activist? Um, so first off, I'd like to thank, thank you again for having me. Um, I feel really honored to be in this space with everyone here who's doing such great work. Um, and with regards to the question, I think in my life, I've been very privileged in my isolation from war, especially in a country that has such a large military presence um, around the world. And my first uh, real exposure to learning about the impacts of war was actually from my grandmother, who grew up in Japan during World War II. And she lived in the city of Hiroshima for much of her childhood, but moved out of the city in around um, 1943, I believe. And two years after that, the city was um, bombed with the atomic bomb, and many of her childhood childhood friends um, and family members were killed. 
And to hear this story as a child was really devastating. And it began my interest and personal connection um, to learning about and challenging nuclear warfare um, and militarism as a whole. And following this, this experience, I began learning about World War II and other conflicts in school. And I really realized how much of our history curriculum is colored by a nationalistic and idealistic perspective of war. Um, this was last year, actually. One class I remember very distinctly, we had to debate the use of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but really from the perspective of, um, was it tactically a good move? We didn't question whether it was moral to murder civilians with this um, weapon of mass destruction. And to see how the institution of war isn't challenged um, in my school shocked and really hurt me. Um, and it led me to take a course this past summer with World Beyond War. So that really began um, my real education in um, the impacts of militarism and war. Wow, what a um, what an experience to to have that in your own family and to be asked that question. I sure can feel that one. I'd like to just ask each of you, what is it actually that you are engaged in? What is it that you do? And in some cases, some of you are founders of organizations, others of you are not. I'd like to just ask each of you, and I think I'd like to go in the same order, starting with Alejandra, how do you express your activism? What is it that you do that brings you here today? Um, first of all, I think grow up in a really complicated um, country. Um, inspired me to to dedicate my life to volunteering you know so i'm volunteer of different organizations what i believe i can make some changes in the society so i'm part of uh, brother international where i develop my love for uh, ps topics and everything and there, I'm part of um, Rotaract for Peace, that is um, an organization of youth, young people, I mean, um, where we look for having projects of peace around the, the world. Also, I'm a train of trainers of positive peace here in my country because I had like an a scholarship where I was uh, training for this. And also I'm a part of another organization called um, Voces Leaders Foundation, where I work with kids. And actually we are working on a project with peace journalism. So the idea is uh, to talk about uh, human rights and they are part of the construction construction of peace in this country and in their communities. Um, so it's, it's really good. Actually, we have a little ceremony with them today because they finished um, the first step to be a, a kid peace builder or something like that. So yeah, that is how I express my, my activism. Great, thank you. I'd like to ask Liba the same question. What is it that you actually do as an activist? So, to be honest, I'll be very true with my journey. 
like i was totally lost and unaware of the topics like climate change peace until i joined the webinar of dr phil gittings on peace and i cannot appreciate his work and the you know the awareness he spreads all around the world his work is truly appreciated and since then it was around 1 month ago when we had a webinar in my district and that when he just you know when he just told about the current scenario of peace and why it is so important since then i got interested in that topic peace and i just realized that topics like climate change peace really exist because in india in if i like when i was a student of in 12th standard or when i was 17 years old so it's like you are being told that there are three subjects you can either take maths through which you can become a chartered accountant you can or you can take science in which you can become a doctor or an engineer or third you can take ip in which you can become something in computer science field so i was totally unaware of this you know so much interesting fields that exist and which are so much important you know like which needs so much focus and work like if i talk about india the major if i say the barriers of peace building in india then poverty is one of it poverty is one of the major barrier in peace building in india but how does poverty come we should think on it it comes because of the natural calamities that happens in india now why the natural calamities happening because of the climate change because so many industries so many people we being humans we being indian citizens are contributing to greenhouse gas emission and you know it everything has a huge impact so if i talk about working for if i talk about eradicating poverty then before eradicating poverty if i could contribute in eradi in helping reducing the greenhouse gases emission which could further reduce the climate impact on my country as well as around the world then it would be far much better because we would eradicate the root cause which is the cause of many big problems that are happening right now in india now coming back to me i am a road tractor i got engaged in this moment 2 years ago and uh, it's really nice like i coincidentally engaged in it just because my family i come from a very introvert kind of family my father doesn't allow me to move out so i just joined it it was it is near my house the rotra club of mahu community and we used to do we do you know some activities often and like in a month we do two activities as a part of a club i also contribute in it like lately we went on food packet distribution to poor people so like that activities on self awareness on um girl child on you know still like social issues we work on on poverty whatever the major issues are we work on that plus uh, i am also a district international service director of road track international district 3040 so being part of the district international service i lately initiated one project with dr phil gettings and it was just a great experience again thank you so much dr phil gettings to be to accept my invitation for this day so yeah and another i just after i got to know about the topics like peace and climate change i got uh, i just involved those in my studies as well like 
lately in my college i got an assignment to create a research paper so i just chose to work on climate change in india and but as i come from a business background marketing background so i just tried to merge them both and then i came up with the topic of climate change sustainable brands and consumer in which i'll be highlighting the consumer you know people the basic uh, uh, like what consumers of india feel about climate change and how sustainable brands such a nice topic it is sustainable brands and how sustainable brands are you know contributing in reducing the greenhouse gases emissions and how it is making an impact plus earning profits so yeah that's all for me great thank you um it makes me smile to hear you say that you have to explain to your father why you are doing these activities and you know it makes me realize that while um being emerging activists is what you all have in common that that can mean different things the next person i want to ask melina you actually run an organization as i understand so obviously have devoted more years at this point to your work i'd like to know melina can you tell us about everything you do Yeah um so about 2 years ago a friend and I Jensella we you know had both finished uh, our time at university in Manchester um and I went there to do a masters in security and international law um and I didn't really I don't know it's not that like I didn't like any of the job options cuz it's not like we can necessarily be super picky in this environment but regardless I was just kind of like I feel like I'm I would only go to serve as a wheel in the whole system that currently exists which is why we have the issues that we have in this world. And my friend Jensella was saying that she was setting up an organization that was going to look at university divestment and how universities could step away from the arms trade. Something which literally make me go like Scooby Doo like what? Oh my gosh, what do you mean? Um and essentially universities have three big universities, you know, that we all know and love that have um research programs um will usually have some sort of uh involvement with either dual use companies so companies that manufacture products um that can be used both in a civilian and in a military way or with just you know actual arms manufacturers there's the company BAE Systems that boasts about having had the help of the University of Manchester for the creation of their new magma drone while well, in the research part of it you know so our once we kind of found that out we were thinking like this is absolutely crazy and we shouldn't have to be you know when you're going to when you're at university like you're forming and preparing yourself for adulthood and if that preparation um is essentially a funnel that you can't really escape because of um you know economic pressure or just that like this is the best way for you to go in order for you to succeed then that kind of defeats the purpose of like going to university to critically look at to basically critically evaluate evaluate what you're studying because I I I see university as a place where like you basically train your brain muscles and try to flex and figure out you know what it is that you stand for and what it is that you don't and so we did some more research and found out that essentially alongside the research aspect where you know you'll have like aerospace engineering students that will be working on projects um you know kind of like this magma drone with BAE sim- systems um they also have grad schemes like graduate schemes which are 
sometimes too hard to refuse, you know, a really good job, an accelerated um, pathway to, um, you know, getting various uh, credentials, like in a, in a professional space. Um, so, you know, sometimes these schemes, like you can't really refuse them. And then alongside all of that, there is also another side, which is a bit harder to prove, but other organizations um, such as Palestine Solidarity Campaign have actually done this research, but there is evidence that universities could have even financial investments in arms companies, which at that point, how much of, of this money that's being invested is student fees? Um, I don't want my student fees to go to companies that are literally perpetuating war and thrive off of war and whose only goal is to, yeah, make sure that we're in conflict. Um, so, you know, with all that being said, that is a huge it's very much our, our Goliath, you know, it's something that we have to fight against. And so we realized very early on that one, we couldn't do it alone. And two, we actually needed to like spread this message out to people that were our age and younger, you know, going to university that, you know, did you know that these big institutions, this is kind of what does happen in the background in order to make things function seamlessly um, at the storefront. And we kind of vowed and, and, and vowed to become this community for modern day peacemakers, you know, by modern day peacemakers, it's, and not everyone can be like, you know, bless them, they're doing a lot of great work, but not everyone can be like extension rebellion and getting arrested um, to prove a point. Um, you know, so we really wanted to create a space where people can come and use any skill that they have and put that towards, um, you know, either it's making content or producing research or even just getting involved with like our divestment model which I'm currently leading on and working on, but it's, it's been difficult. Um, you know, it's, we really wanted to make this a space that like, look, we know that these conversations and this topic is difficult because it really is. Um, but there is a way to understand it. And like, you're welcome to join the space in order to understand it. And, you know, we're two years in, we've got a nice little following. It's, we've got a, a little community that started and it's, it's quite nice, but we still have ways to go. And, and it's going to take a lot for us to really get where we where we want to get. But um, yeah, that's essentially my job. And then I do podcasts and host sometimes um, panels. Um, and then I do the research on the divestment. So it kind of all has to always go back into either educating in a way. And I say educating with quote, quotation marks because I don't consider myself an educator. But I, I do know that I have ways of... Um, uh, what's the word like conveying information in a way that's easier to understand and and then also, also like the kind of research aspect on on the side the work you're doing on divestment sounds great and divestment is one of the pillar activities of world beyond war looking forward to us continuing to work with you melina on divestment I'd like to now ask the same question to Christine. And also, I want to say, Christine, when you were expressing that you're tired of waiting, I sort of sensed in you a real sense of personal mission. So I'm also curious, you know, what is it that originally drove you to do the things you do? Um, thank you so much, Mark. Just going off the question you just asked, um, for me, it's just honestly just feeling a sense of, hopelessness and 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 fear the fear that i don't know what tomorrow holds like i don't know and again i am a firstborn so sometimes it's just the fear of 
um how is tomorrow going to look like like with my sisters and brothers have a place where they'd actually be safe to play outside and and so for me it was just it was it was just frustrating how every day just was just hard you don't know what to expect you don't know how it's going to be every i mean every day in the news is it's chaos and people the economy is bad so sometimes even affording a meal was a problem i remember at my at my home and i remember my my mom at some point had to do some really hard jobs um to make sure that we could afford food so it was just yeah frustrate frustration hopelessness and and fear that actually drove me to uh peace work so what do i do i i i have over five years experience of creating um networks like youth networks because i realized also just coming off in this space there are a lot of young people doing a lot of work but they don't speak to each other so what you realize is that there's a lot of replication uh duplication of um project and activities so I remember we were in Rwanda at a, at a countering and countering violent extremism workshop, and we were just wondering, as as young people, we we were doing a lot of things in Africa, but we were not talking to each other. So sometimes myself being in Kenya, I feel like everything, every worst thing just happens in Africa, and then I meet people from Cameroon, I meet people. From I meet people from Nigeria, I meet people from Congo, and I'm like, wait, it's actually not that bad in Kenya. It's worse elsewhere. So in that, we also just kind of came together and formed a network where we could support each other and be in solidarity with other people and also honestly just give them hope that there's tomorrow, give them hope that it might be hard today, but you know what, tomorrow something good will happen. And largely, we actually just live on hope as peace builders, and it's the one thing that keeps us going. And so I have been privileged to also um, help in, in, in building programs and um, around peace building in, in Africa and around the Commonwealth. I also helped um, together with other uh, people from the Commonwealth Youth Peace Ambassadors Network that was literally a network to champion young peace builders from the grassroots, national, uh, regional, and Pan-African. And, and so we actually have a reach up to the 54 now member states of the Commonwealth to just make sure that all these young people who want to join the movement can have people who they can look at and say, so-and-so was here and so-and-so was able to do one, two, three, four, five, six. So I'm also able to walk in their footsteps and do something better. They are, they are coming off from a point of, I have other people who I, can, who I can reach out to for support. I have other people to look up to for hope. I have other people to look up to for, um, just to steer me into the right direction and to honestly just push hope um, together. And so with that, uh, we were actually, um, part of the team that spearheaded the campaign towards the, the Commonwealth Heads of Governments adopting Resolution 2250, um, 
during Chogam and uh, Chogam is the Commonwealth Heads of Governments meeting in London in uh, 2018. So it's, it's to pretty much um, make sure that we create spaces where young people can, can come together and in solidarity work through their peace and security issues. Wonderful. Thanks again. When I hear these statements and these responses, I'm just so glad to be speaking to each of you. And I want to be speaking more to each of you. Sayako, by the way, I noticed that you have a focus on changing the understanding of history and the history curriculum that is taught. I think that's one of several activities that you've expressed. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in that because I think our understanding of history is a topic that needs more attention. So I'd love to hear about that and about everything you do. Yeah. So um, in Westchester County, where I live, I could say that there are many small towns that are on the face progressive, but are truly very conservative. And in working with some of my peers to challenge this history curriculum, that's very clearly whitewashed. It's from a colonizer's perspective. We've experienced some of that politics. These boards of educations are largely dominated by wealthier, whiter families um, who have a vested interest in maintaining these certain systems of control within the school, including this very biased history curriculum. Um, So at my school in particular, uh, we feel very lucky because we have a wonderful principal who is really trying to work with us to create committees um, where students can speak to teachers about their experiences with the curriculum, what we see as um, possible suggestions um, and additions that could be made to it. Um, Because as I mentioned very briefly, I've had negative experiences with the curriculum and many of my peers, it's, it's just, it's really amazing um, the scope of historical misrepresentation, especially regarding the U.S.'s role in military conflicts, for example. And so this work to challenge the curriculum is part of an organization that um, I helped to found and I'm currently serving as a board member of. We're called Westchester Student Organizers for Justice and Liberation. And our purpose is to, as Christine mentioned, it's, it's difficult when there are many people working on similar issues and they're not connected, um, especially in Westchester, as I mentioned, there are many small towns and it's very easy for youth organizers to feel isolated um, and powerless. So we're trying to create a space where people with similar interests and who are working on similar issues can come together and feel supported and have the resources they need um, to engage in their organizing work. Um, so the curriculum challenging is just a part of that. Great. Thank you. I'd love to give Phil a chance to ask a question to each of you. Okay. Thank you, Mark. And let me just say it's been it's been wonderful to, to really listen to each of the five speakers and get a, a really deeper insight into, which is a fundamental question. You know, what is it that drives us to do the work that we do? And in, in implicit in that question is what it the values you know what are the values that we hold that inform everything that we do in our personal life and our professional life and i think some of that has really really come through and it's been really interesting to to listen to the five speakers which which in a sense 
I've touched on context-specific different issues. So you've let's give some examples. Saliba um, spoke about you know the importance of poverty, and then you've got Sayaku in terms of um, the overall being embedded within the US. Um, and as we know, it's it's the you know at the heart and center of the war machine, which we're trying so much to kind of tackle and then Christine with her work across Africa and, and very much networking and then you've got Alejandra talking about 50 years worth of civil war it can not a culture of war or uh, embedded within Colombia cannot be turned turned around or shifted within a, a couple of years you know we need to look at kind of generational change and then Elena in terms of the background around the DRC and what brought her to do the work that she did that she does and then also turn the turning the lens really on the, the 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 role of the universities in this war system i think it's been really really interesting and they've been speaking about different issues some of the common themes that i think come through is is um networking is really really important i think it's this idea of collaboration as well there's some wonderful work going on um and and i think we've heard that each each, each of the five speakers are really interested in collaborating, collaborating with others, uh, understanding what they do well and doing what they do well and understanding what they perhaps don't do so well and collaborating with people that do do it well, which I think is a really shrewd, shrewd way of looking at things. And I think we can learn a lot. You know, it's something I think we need, probably need to improve in terms of the peace building, war abolition movement as well, collaboration. Uh, another thing which stood out as well, and it was great to hear as well, was this idea of they're all very committed and they were kind of, and they all know that they just couldn't wait for other people to do it because other people wouldn't do it. So what they thought is the best way to try and make a change or try and bring about change, drive change, facilitate change, be part of that change, be the change we want to see in the world is to, okay, I'll go out there and do it myself. So, and I think that that comes through as well, which is really lovely to hear. So, on your point, Mark, I was thinking of one thing. Um, so, and here it is. So if we think about, let's say, the, the war abolition movement or, or let's say the youth peace and security movement, etc. I think there's, we, we now know a lot about that. I, I, of course, that's not to say that more work should not be done. So we know that there needs to be a lot more investment. We know that there needs to be more inclusion in terms of young people being involved. We know that there needs to be better partnership working. So we know all these things. I want to really ask, ask um, the vice speakers about this question of when they're thinking about at the end of the day, we should be looking at this idea of an intergenerational collaboration or intergenerational ways of working because there's parts which young people bring, vibrancy, creativity, etc. Not saying that older people don't do that. I'm just saying that different people bring expertise, you know, in different ways. I'm curious about what it is that's needed from adults or say older people if and if we work from the assumption that let's say the un defines young people 15 to 24 but then you've got the african charter you know up to 35 so let's say 40 plus or whatever right what is it that, that the young people think adults need to do to work more effectively with young people to I'm not always the biggest fan of provide that platform. I wouldn't say that's the best kind of word, although I know it's used quite a lot. Um, what What is it that adults could do to really kind of support this work overall in a way that better partners with young people? 
And what is it that what attributes are needed from the adults themselves? Because I think that's a really sometimes overlooked question. And the reason why I say that is that when we think about, let's say, peace education and the great work done by the Global Campaign for Peace Education, they have two goals. One is to universalize peace education. And the other one is to really look at teacher training. Okay, and I think if you turn that mirror onwards in terms of the youth peace and security movement, I think there's a lot of work around kind of the policy and things like that. I, I, I'm seeing less around this idea of what adults need to change themselves in terms of working with young people. So uh, I'm really curious what people would would answer with regards to that. So. I don't know, Mark, if you want to go in the same order, you decide the order. But the question is the question is this. So what is it that adults need to do and what attributes, capacities, vision do they need to have to better work with young people in this process of war abolition and peace building work broadly defined? If you don't mind going in the same order, let's do that, Alejandra, first. Okay, um, that is a really important question because... Um, I think that if we want a change, we need to hear from all the parts of the of the world of the society. So first of all, I think it's really really important that adults listen to us, that they give us our place. I mean, yes, we are young, but we have a lot of great ideas, maybe some crazy ideas, but the the difference of these ideas could make um, a difference of the of the world, and obviously it's really really important also to validate our ideas. You know, um, as I as I told you, um, yeah, of course, sometimes we have some crazy ideas about how to change the world, but it's necessary to to have these ideas. I mean, we cannot change. If we not uh, have different points of views, so in this way we we put aside the beliefs that only if you are an adult you think things through correctly. So I think it, it's a matter of getting the best of both sides. I mean the illusion, the hope, and the ideas that can sound crazy from the young people, and maybe the organization. Um, of course, money and any any other things from the adults. So um, I remember that once my mom told me that I couldn't change the, the world. And I told her that it was possible. It's just that she's an adult and I am not. So I'm, I'm still young and I still believe that um, peace is possible. So... I think that that is really important to to do. Well, you are definitely correct that you can and you will. Um, Laiba. So, like, I totally agree with what Phil Sir said that every person is different in it in his or her own kind. They have different thoughts. They have different interests. They have different kind of approaches to do things. And it's always great when we collaborate with more people. Like even if someone thinks that even if adults, like they should, everyone should think to, you know, get more people to work towards one cause because team efforts are always 
effort. And me being a young girl, I would expect others who are more experienced in the field of peace, conflict resolution to guide me. If I have an interest and if I approach them to um, guide me in any way, like if I have interest in peace or conflict resolution, then what could I do more to, you know, make my work or my, you know, my interest uh, to like to actually work in that field more broadly and, you know, like creating a career in it. So in that way, I, I expect the adults to guide, to give the young people right guidance in whatever interest they have. Melina, we'd love to hear from you. I find the concept of like young people versus adults um, <laughs> to be one in which we're actually, you know, this is my personal opinion. It's just that, you know, we young people are adults. We're just the kind of we, we just came out of our cocoon and are now now entering adulthood you know so I think it's first of all kind of there there needs to be a, a recognition of like you know all of us here on this panel and I'm gonna include myself because yeah it is what it is but we're all very aware of what we're talking about you could nearly say that we have like expertise in what we talk about and so sometimes I think that that's not really considered when we're in conversations with older people who still kind of see us as like, oh no, but you're young and you've got hope and you've got this and you don't know how the real world yet works and everything. And it's like, fine, maybe I don't have like your lived experience, but this is the conclusions and the deductions that I came to from my own reasoning. You know, so I think it's one of those things that like, we do need to just actually be taken more seriously and be considered more because at the end of the day, like we're the next generation that is going to be in charge when like, the older generations are even older. My gosh, I'm really trying not to sound rude, <laughs> but I'm just, you know, my point is just that it's like, we need to actually be able to like listen to each other. And we as young adults, we have a lot to learn from those who came before us and those who like paved the way for us to to be where we're at today. Um, there's lessons that can be learned from both sides. And I think that ultimately that's kind of how we're going to, achieve this co like coherence between between the both you know the two age groups like young people versus you know like I guess more mature adults um it's it's just by actually opening a line of communication in which we understand that like everyone's coming to table to the table with their own set of expertise and ideas and opinions and that like you know while I do agree that sometimes too many chefs in the kitchen is too much um in the context where we're trying to think of like long lasting peace efforts and pathways to durable, um, durable peace, we need to consider like what the youth wants for their future and not just kind of what adults want to see happening right now. Um, you know, and again, like I'm, I'm, I don't even think that I'm one of the older ones here, um, out of, out of the five of us girls that are here, but, um, I, I think I probably am. And, everyone's on the same level realistically so i i kind of would recommend if anything we start kind of using the word like young adults because that's ultimately what we're shaping to become is yeah fully fully fledged realized adults <laughs> um but yeah i think it's just line, a good open line of communication in which um there is there is no sense of like uh, um 
you know, there's, there's no, um, no, no way in which there can be any sort of like patronizing conversation, basically. You know, I'd, I would also, as I mentioned before, propose the term emerging activists. So I, I come from a, a sort of writing poetry background, and we always used to have this phrase, emerging writers or emerging poets. So I think, you know, maybe that's a good one to use because you are certainly all emerging and I'm looking forward to all of you having an impact. Christine, same question to you. It's, I, I, I completely agree with what the previous speakers before me said, and I'd like to add this. I'd like to urge the adults to reimagine governance and accountability. Because at the root of what they're doing, most of them have the goodwill at heart. No question. Well, some don't, but the majority do. But you have, like here in Africa, you have a youth bulge that you honestly do not know how to deal with because you don't understand them. So how about you reimagine governance and accountability in a way that is a is is a is inclusive for a whole of society approach? Because the transgenerational nature of conflicts actually tells you that much as sometimes as 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 emerging young people, we might be the people to come up with these policies we might actually not end up being the one fully exercising it. And the generation coming after us are actually the people to enjoy what we're doing today. So in that transition, I should be able to know much as I'm doing my best today, I'm doing my best for somebody else who's coming behind. So just going off to what uh, Melina said and what also Alejandro said, if you don't listen, then you don't actually know why you're doing the policies in the first place. Because who is going to implement that policy if you don't want me to own that policy? I'm not going to own something that I was not involved in writing. I am not going to own something that I don't know how it came, it, it came to be. So involving me in what you're doing and, and trusting that I have the goodwill to implement because it's it's not going to uh, benefit me, but all of us. So I'd actually just going off what Phil said, I'd like to call it a transgenerational approach than intergenerational. Because the risk, especially from an African context, the risk of saying intergenerational is you find that culturally we are cultured to know that as young people, we don't speak to the elders. The elders speak to us. That when the elders speak, we listen. But it's getting to a point where we're telling them these issues are transgenerational. And so if you don't listen to me today, then oops, once you're gone, it's gone. It's, it's gone. You go with whatever you're working for. And I have to start again. Why don't you then create a path that will be easier for me to transition to and actually own it? Thanks. What a great answer. Thank you. Sayako. I think from a U.S. perspective, um, this can be seen in like all levels of society, but in government in particular, there's a lot of discrediting of younger folks. Um, Someone who comes to mind is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Because she's younger um, and her views are more progressive than many, she's seen as very naive, um, unpragmatic. And I think this has been true in my experience too, especially when speaking to 
uh, I don't want to make a generalization, but um, some adults, um, especially in political spaces, I've been um, called a quote boss baby, um, which is an American movie about a tiny baby who runs a business. Um, And there's often discrediting of youth who have worked on issues um, for much time because they're seen as too presumptuous or they're seen as um, naive, as I said. And I think as everyone has mentioned here, there has to be trust in youth ideas um, because um, as Christine said, it's coming from a place of goodwill and intention. Um, And all of us here, we really care about the issues that we're working on. And even though we might not have as much experience as someone who's older and has worked on these um, for much time, we have done our research um, and we're really open to learning more um, and hearing from the experiences of others. Um, But we have a real interest in leading a lot of this work and sharing our ideas, whatever they are. That was a great question, Phil. Thank you. I love those answers. Um, We have time for one more question around, and I'm going to ask this in a very general way. Basically, I'm going to ask each of you to say whatever you want as a closing statement, but here are just, I'll just plant a couple of seeds in this question. From your perspective, where are we, the human race, the planet Earth, where are we right now? Where are we in history? Are we in a dangerous position? Is this the same way it's always been? What is your perception of the situation that we are facing globally right now? And the other thing I'd like to ask, and you can feel free to answer any of these questions, what should I know, me, the podcaster here in Brooklyn, who has never been to most of the places that most of you live in, what should I know that I might not know? And finally, what has been said here that you would like to address? So those are very open questions, and really, you can feel free to say anything you want, and this will be the last question. Alejandra. Um. Well, in my perspective, and what I'm living right now, um, obviously in my country and and with the opportunity to meet like a lot of young peace builders around the world, I think we are waking up. We are really waking up. And I think technology has helped a lot with that because um, there's like no possibility to hide things. And that is really, really important because in, in other days, um, there was the possibility to hide what is happening in any country or any region. And right now, it's not possible. So we um, know more things about the wall and we know more about how it's working. So I, I think that that is really important because I think we are closer of a kind of revolution or something like, like that in terms of of peers and society changes and everything. So I'm, I'm glad of that. Of course, there's a lot of work to do. Um, there's a lot of enemies of, um, of the good stuff, but I believe in this. I believe in in the peace builders, I believe in volunteers, I believe in a lot of organization that we already work on these topics. So yeah, I, I think that the that that, that is a, my general idea. And another thing that I would like to say is that 
um, I I think that, that a really important um, thing right now is to open spaces of dialogue. I mean, what we all have said before today about intergenerational construction of of a different society, about why we are in activism and everything, I think we have to focus on this to open spaces of dialogue because we many times we don't know, realize that we are perpetrating violence when we ignore it. And opening these spaces give us the possibility to critically analyze the reality of our countries. So um, even though many situations uh, get out of our hands, we at least generate this feeling of, of empathy. You know, that is really important. I think right now we are waking up, but with empathy. So it's necessary to to open this space in conference, in workshops, in, with our communities, seminars, I don't know. Like there's a lot of options to do. And um, it's also necessary to open opportunities for new leaderships. Um, I mean, it's, it's necessary to give the opportunity to more people to be trained as leaders and to study the realities in their countries so we can lead the process of solution to problems um, that are presented together with our communities. So, yeah, I think that will be my, my answer. Well, thank you very much. We'll keep going in order. Laiba. Yeah, so from an Indian perspective, I feel that situations are much better than before. Like there is less poverty, less discrimination as compared to before. Because as we know that before there used to be huge discrimination between Dalits and, you know, people who are, you know, below poverty and who who live in as a part of minority used to face a lot of discrimination like even in in class they used to sit on floor the minority used to sit on floor and the rich ones who are more privileged or who are more in majority they used to sit on benches so that kind of uh, um, discrimination used to happen in past but now it is not it is much better even minorities are getting much more privileges now but uh, they don't have right to, you know, they cannot speak fully what they really want. To. That's what I personally feel that we, me being from a Muslim community, I don't receive any such right. But if I talk about Dalits and those who have seen a lot of discrimination and worse scenarios in the past have been rewarded with much privileges that there is, they deserve, I feel. Because they have seen a lot and I mean, yeah, it's good for them. But as a part of minority, I feel I don't, I cannot speak what I really want to fully in India. Even if, if it's my, in on my, or like, even if it's my social media, personal handles, I could not speak on political issues, even if I want to. Because I have so much fear because in all my contacts, there are 80% is comes under the majority. And I know that they will come over me and they will, you know, suppress me. And I, I 
personally have that fear within me that that is going to happen and a lot of people will you know get over me so that is one thing that i want that uh, in india minority get support to speak like at least their voices should be heard and uh, like I, uh, coming back to the point that things are better now but this is not the end we all together should try to work on major issues that each country is facing like i really love what uh, christine said that we should we should start networking more with each other because you know we get inspired by each other's work lately i started to network with other peace builders and um people like uh, people who are working in this field and i really see them what the work they are do- doing and i just really get inspired at what they are doing i can even do that in my country because somewhere every country can relate some of the problems with each other um another thing me as a young person and i would encourage like every young people we all five who are here i'd like that we are you know speaking we got a chance to speak and we are very much enthusiastic about peace if i talk about india then there are not much young people who are you know engaged in the topics like this because they are not aware that's what i feel once they are aware of it then they can engage in it so i feel that me being a young people in upcoming months i would try to empower more young people in in india to get engaged in topics like peace conflict prevention and make them and encourage them to work with me or work in their part of the city or in their wherever they live just try to make an impact where they live so yeah that's my call for it thank you great thank you melena you're up first of all i really want to thank um once again you guys for mark and, and phil for organizing this and and um my fellow co-panelists um sayako alejandra christine and laiba um i'll catch you sometime on linkedin i'm sure in the chats um but you know i think everything that we said today is is basically a really good representation of where we are you know as um in in this world um through our insanely you know the 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 cap the network capabilities that social media give us today make it that it's possible for five people from all five continents to be able to speak together about these things which affect all of us ultimately so i want to be optimistic and i want to think that we are at a turning point and that the fact that we are so connected is while sometimes it may seem like it's going to be to our demise it actually could go to our benefit and could be what helps us get a glimpse of of um of what it's like you know uh, on the other side of the world um i know that even up until like three years ago i wasn't aware of the things that i'm aware of today and that's solely from being able to network and to be able to connect with people from different cities and different countries um but you know i i do I do remain like as much as I want to be optimistic I do realize that like the fact that we have this huge ability to connect with all one another has also opened up um avenues that have led to some very distressing um you know like hate speeches and like vi- violent words said to one another um because we are able to hide behind 
usernames and and computers and phones. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's it's one of these situations where we. I want to believe that really we are a generation change. Um, I know every every generation when they're at about this age consider themselves to be generation change, but we genuinely are going through some very interesting times, even now with COVID-19. Um, you know, we're seeing that like perhaps we actually aren't prioritizing the right things and that we aren't putting the investments into the right places um, that, that we need to. So, um, you know, I'm kind of hoping that once we recover from COVID-19, that we all kind of have this general awakening and like, okay, yes, things can no longer go on the way that they have because that was a nightmare of a crisis to handle, you know, especially here in Europe. It's it's quite distressing to see how everything's being handled. Um, but yeah, I remain hopeful for the future and I remain hopeful that, you know, because we are all so passionate and that we there literally is no excuse no to no longer be able to educate yourself. Um, so to me, I, I, I kind of hope that um, this, this will resonate <laughs> across, across the world, across communities and, and across populations. But thank you so much for having me on again. I, I really, this was a wonderful time and, and I'm so grateful and humbled to be and honored really to, to be in this space. Well, thank you. And I am honored too to speak to all of you. I really want to say that I, I'm really, I'm learning a lot just from hearing you. And um, I'm glad also, Milena, that you brought up the fact that technology has been a double-edged sword in terms of solving problems. I mean, at least from my perspective right now, I'm not sure what problems technology has solved, but the fact that we are all speaking here today is a problem it has solved. So um, I'm going to now ask Christine. Yeah, um, Mark, that that question has actually just made me sort of do an introspect and and to just even going off what Melina said about technology being a double-edged sword and and just coming off the pandemic we've seen a lot of young people globally not waiting to be invited but most of them were actually fast responders be it in volunteering to make sure that older people, vulnerable populations, I mean, refugees, um, were able to um, to actually um, see through the guidelines of a World Health Organization, if it was providing masks for people who cannot afford, if it's um, helping people who are physically uh, challenged to just cross roads or get into buildings and whatnot, so young people have actually been the first responders during this pandemic. And at the heart of their response is a sense of power, is a sense of resilience, is a sense of exclusion they experience, not binding them down, but they actually want to, liber to be liberated from it. And, and so it's, it's a new phase of people just showing how they can be better public servants, which is something I think we have not seen in a quite a long time. It probably happened during the other pandemics, but what a time to be alive. And so it's, it's just, the world is in a space where young people are just standing up to say, you know what, we're not waiting for you to include us. We will do it if you want us to do it or not. But at the end of the day, Look at what we are doing. Look at the movements that are happening around the world and the transnational nature 
and how some of the transnational issues have been able to influence national issues. I mean, look at what police brutality movement has done to some of our populations. So I think in the world, young people are just coming up to say, you know what, this can be done. We are tired and we just want reforms. We just want to have a good place to live, to be mentally stable, to be to, to be okay and not worry about what is going to happen tomorrow because our leaders are not representing our interests. And what, uh, what should you know uh, that you don't? Africa has always been depicted in this picture of diseases and malnutrition and weird stuff. But out here, honestly, we are the most humble and giving people there are in the world. I mean, I have had the privilege of, of, of studying in the US. I have visited the UK. I have visited um, the East. And Africans, most of them do not have much, but they give a lot. They share the little they have. And especially to foreigners, which is something that baffles me every time. The fact that much as sometimes we know the problems we experience are because of colonialism. We still love when all these foreigners visit us. And honestly, you will be given the best treatment when you visit an African home because we do not keep hatred. We don't. Even as much as systems just don't work for us sometimes, we still are resilient people and we still wish the best for everyone in the community. And so I'd, I'd like for us to, as, as young people, honestly, to learn how to live harmon, uh, in harmony with other people, even the generation that has gone before us that has not necessarily represented our interests, to just look at what our children are going to say about us. What legacies do we want to leave? And as I finish, this famous quote, we usually say it in Africa. I'm not sure about around the world. But in Africa, because we have the lions anyway, we usually say, until the lion learns to write, every story will glorify the hunter. And so unless us young people learn to tell our own stories, speak up for what we think is right and truth, somebody else will claim that. And we have seen from experience that when they tell our story, they're not painting us in the right picture. They're painting us as a problem to be solved. So what do you want your story to be told as? Do you want to tell your, your story? And should you tell your story as a young person? That is a challenge that I want to leave us with. Thank you. Wow. Oh, my God. What a great answer, Christine. And I'm so glad I asked the question that caused you to give that answer. Thank you. Sayaka, same question. Yes, same reflection on Christine's response to hear that um, last quote that's very, very impactful. Because I think this can be a very hopeless time for many with all, all the crises we're seeing, the climate crisis, the threat of nuclear weapons, militarism, um, and now the coronavirus. It's very easy to feel very powerless, um, especially as a young person, because as everyone has mentioned, we see people in power who don't represent what we want, and it's our future that's on the line, and we feel that we have very limited say in what takes place. So I think that to hear everyone's work here has given me a lot of hope in these past months, and it's very inspiring, and 
I think that if we create spaces where youth can hear the work um, of others, it can make them realize more that they do have power to make changes that they want to see. In my experience, um, even though I live in a very small town where really a drop of water will rock the boat, uh, so to speak, I felt like I couldn't make changes that I wanted to see until um, the summer when I helped organize some reinvestment protests, defending the police protests. Um, And that really involved me in much more work. So I think that around the world, if we can start to get youth involved in spaces um, where they feel that they have a voice and can make changes in their own vision, not dominated by adults or by some sort of oppressive bureaucracy, then we can start to make the world that we want to live in in the future. Well, thank you so much. Um, you are all amazing, really. And I know that's a cliche, but I just want to say that from the heart. The work all of you are going to do is so important and the work you're already doing. I'd like to give Phil a chance to um, close us out. Phil, what, what would you like to say? No pressure here then, following up from uh, the wonderful speaks that have just gone on. Um, I think, so a few things going through my head. Every single time I, I have the privilege, and, and I do feel so, so privileged to, to work with, listen to, learn from the young people, I come away. And, and as I was listening to them, I was kind of like shaking, shaking my head in a good way, going, my gosh, that's such a profound reflection. And, um, you know, I read a lot about this work all the time in scholarly journals and things like this. Um, and some of their reflections are just so much more powerful and so much more realistic and so much more kind of to the point. Um, Sayako, so what you just said, I, it was interesting where you just said it, you know, a drop of water in, 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 in my area would rock the boat. Well, I, and I, I'm just thinking about that and I've just been thinking, well, I've heard, that, I've heard that somewhere. And so I just did like all good scholars do. I Googled it. So one tiny drop of water begins a chain reaction that causes a big result. You're all doing brilliant wonderful drops of water right now which is is causing a wonderful kind of chain reaction so thank you to all that you're that you're doing a few other things that i want to kind of say mark those again just before finishing that got me thinking so, so I, I like yeah christine so christine spoke about this idea of trans generation i think that's a really interesting concept and um it's something i've been thinking a lot about and i just want to put it out there that i have not had the chance to write it up in a way but it's something that's going through my head about some of the, the work that's being done so there's a lot of work about this idea of putting youth at the center of peace building and i myself have wrote about that and i know it comes from you know a lot of scholarly work that's being done and i want to challenge that thought i'm not so sure that we should be putting young people right at the center. I think that it'd be more beneficial if we think of this idea of people at the center or or let's say the world at the center. So rather than the young people being at the center and being just the subject themselves, because I think if they if we just focus on young people at the center of peace building work, then we miss out on this idea of what we spoke about, this intergenerational, this transgenerational work. So I want to make a call, although I haven't written it up yet. So I want to make this claim that perhaps we can start thinking about, so it might be worth one way of thinking about, you know, having the world at the center or having the person at the center. So the young person, 
the child, the adult are in the center, but they're not put at the center. Okay, because all this work is a lot bigger than one person, right? It's a, it's about, you know, systemic change and things like this. So that's one thought going through my head. And then another thought going through my head was this idea of, yeah, it's a kind of what's what's the labels that we use you know so and that might be different in different contexts so like i explained i come from a traditionally trained youth work background and, and it was always kind of ingrained in us youth work and um, as youth workers trained professional youth workers that it's absolutely fine to use the word you know young people and and actually it's a lot better to use the word young people than young adults you know but then i heard melena speak and it got me thinking and then i started thinking well, okay. And and I guess on that, I can draw from something with, which I probably can carry a little bit of authority around this idea of counselling and psychotherapy, which looks at kind of how to communicate. And there's one theory which looks at um, that most of our relationships or most of our communications can be brought broke, broken down into three different, let's say, um relationships so one is a child one is an adult one is a parent and i'm sort of transsexual analysis i'm sure people here you know the listening have heard this but part of the idea around that is that we choose the way to communicate and the way in which we be in the world dependent on the particular situation so i can tell you now i'm absolutely fine and love being a child at sometimes because it warrants that approach and i think if i just was serious 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 parent or adult all, all the time and i think it would be a little bit boring so what what i'm trying to put this into context is that i think your approach you know um is 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 informed by or dependent upon who you're working with so i, I told a little story earlier about a particular story related to a live session yesterday and i think it was important for people to kind of switch out of the the kind of serious mode for the for, for one moment and kind of be a child so that that was another thing that i was thinking of um and then I guess the final thing to, to end on is this idea of which we spoke about before. And again, hats off to you, Mark, about what, what's really happening here is asking people to turn the mirror inwards. I think there's a lot of work being done in terms of work out there. So when we think of our development as peace builders, um, we can think of both inner, the inner and the outer dimensions of change. So the inner dimensions is is the role you as a peace builder right and what is the one thing that we can always have to a good extent control over we can have control over our own way of being you know as gandhi would say uh, be the change that you want to say in the world see in the world so i think this is really useful podcast kind of to to ask the young people to to ask themselves you know where do they come from what informs them and things like this um and then when we have a better understanding of kind of our inner world, which, of course, is an ongoing journey, it's not a case of I'll do this one week meditation and that's it. It's an ongoing process that we obviously keep keep re reflecting on, reflecting on. But the more we can understand our own our own way of being our own inner world let's say the more we can be kind of effective in working with people out there in the real world and and um with that in mind i'll just do a little plug if that's okay mark so as people know we'll be on war are working on a and in collaboration with the rotary action group for peace and, and alejandra's here in terms of the road to act for peace a wonderful upcoming peace education and peace action um experience which will involve six weeks of peace education 
Um, and two of those weeks will be focused on this way of being. One week in particular, looking at turning the mirror inwards, and then the other one looking at kind of turning the mirror outwards. Um, how do we be in relationship with others? So um, I just wanted to kind of end on, on that plug, if that's okay. Thank you. Sure. I want to thank you all again. Let us all talk again. And I hope I'll talk to each of you individually too. So I just want to say goodbye and thank you all for being here. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.